0: Of your faces this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. If you're new, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors around here. Uh, excited to to open the scriptures with you this morning, last week uh, was of course Easter Sunday. If you missed that, if you weren't aware of that, welcome to the land of the living. It's good to have you uh, amongst us this morning. Um, and so last week we celebrated as we as we do every week around here the risen Jesus. Um, but but last week also marked the beginning of a series that's going to carry us all the way through the end of May. A series centered on the seven I am statements of of Jesus in John's gospel account. You see those statements plastered on the wall behind me where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And and lastly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All statements meant to tell us something about Jesus. Everyone seems to have their own take on who Jesus is. Some people uh, will argue that Jesus uh, was a good teacher. Some people argue that he was a, a good person, maybe a philosopher. Others will argue that Jesus was a prophet, but certainly not God. And others will say he was a crazy man. At one point, his family even declared that to be true. Even those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world uh, will seek to soften him or conform them into their own image. And so the question that we're really after in this series is this. Who who does Jesus say he is? Who who is Jesus according to Jesus? And we're going to look at that over the course of the next several weeks, John records his entire gospel account in order to help answer that question. Uh, He's not very inconspicuous about it. He tells us um, in chapter 20 of his gospel account why he's recording the words that make up this very gospel account. In fact, in most of your Bibles, there's a subtitle above those two verses that says the purpose of this book. So it couldn't be any clearer than that. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, including the account that we looked at last week and the account that we're going to look at this week. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you come in this morning trying to sort through who Jesus is, and listen, that that's all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike. If you have come to the conclusion that you've, completely figure Jesus out, you might be the furthest from figuring out who Jesus really is, right? We're all trying to to figure out to some degree the mystery of who Jesus is. John's gospel account is a fantastic place to camp out to sort through the answer to that question. It's exactly where we're going to camp out for the next couple of months. Um, We're going to Spend some time unpacking each one of these I am statements of Jesus, each functioning as a facet in this multifaceted jewel that uh, as you spin the jewel, uh, you learn something new about who Jesus is uh, and who he is for us and what that means for us. And so last week, appropriate to Easter Sunday, we opened up this series taking a look at Jesus' famous declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. If you missed it, as Jason said, I'd strongly encourage you to go and check out the podcast online. We went on a warp speed tour through redemptive history last week. I had a blast with that. I hope you did too if you were here. But this week, we're going to take a look at another of Jesus' famous self-revelatory declarations. He says, I am the bread of life. We're going to look at that statement this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, John chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning, particularly verses 22 through forty. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, please take that Bible with you as you leave this place this morning for free, the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get to work here. Jesus, uh, again, the fact that I open up a prayer with your name implies that uh, belief that you are alive and that praying to you is a good idea, which is a declaration of your deity. And, and I do believe that's true, and I believe that we desperately need you to move this morning by the power of your spirit, because we are going to look at words that came out of your mouth that caused the majority of your followers to walk away, and I'm not you, And so if you don't move by the power of your spirit, there's a possibility that this church might be smaller as we leave this place today. We desperately need you to move in our hearts, uh, to open our eyes to see who you really are, what you've accomplished for us, to open our hearts to to receive that. This morning we get an opportunity to talk about uh, the, the void That we all seek to fill with things and people. We all bring that into this room. We were designed to pursue something to fill the emptiness. And you are going to declare to us that you were meant to fill the emptiness. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. If indeed what you're saying is true about yourself. And I believe that it is. I pray that you would do that. That you would satisfy us with yourself. That you would fill the void of human souls this morning by the power of your spirit. We lift these things up in your name, Jesus. Amen. As we pick up the story in in John chapter 6, verse 22, uh, Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000 men and their families by multiplying the contents of a little boy's lunchbox. That's pretty cool. We could could camp out on that story in and of itself and be mind blown. The, The crowd gets extremely excited in light of this miracle. They get this idea in their minds that Jesus is the one who has come to overthrow Roman tyranny, that he is this political Messiah who will liberate the Jews, but but Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. Jesus actually came to be overthrown by Rome. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and so before the crowd can, can get to him to forcibly crown him, Jesus disappears from the scene. Meanwhile... The disciples decide to hop into a boat and uh, move their way across the Sea of Galilee. And and things go well at first as they begin their journey. The sea is pretty calm, but uh, a storm begins to brew. And midway through their journey, uh, this brutal storm sweeps across the waters. And the boys aren't sure how they're going to get themselves out of this predicament. They're about three or four miles out at sea at this point. There's no swimming your way out of this one. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And not by boat, but by foot. Okay, that's crazy in and of itself, right? The disciples think they've actually seen a ghost, but it's, it's not a ghost. It's Jesus walking across the water as if it were a concrete parking lot. And Jesus says to the boys as he approaches the boat, it is I. Do not be afraid. The literal translation in the original Greek of Jesus' words, fear not, I am. I am. The same words that God used to reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. This is the very first of Jesus' I am declarations in John's gospel account. As if walking on water weren't enough, Jesus now declares himself to be the great I am. A declaration of deity. And then as another demonstration of his power, he leads the boys safely to shore. It's here that we pick up the story in John chapter 6. Beginning in verse 22, says this. On the next day... That is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus." The the crowd is clued in on on the fact that something unique is happening here. Not only because they've just seen Jesus multiply the contents of a little boy's lunchbox to feed an army of people, but also because they've seen the disciples get into a boat that Jesus didn't get into, and yet Jesus isn't there. And so there's more than one trace of divinity on the scene for this crowd of people. And so we see them get into, into boats and head to the other side of the sea looking for Jesus. Now, at this point in the story, it would make a lot of sense if... This crowd made their way across the sea, found Jesus, and fell at his feet in worship. That would make perfect sense. But as we'll find out momentarily, that's not their aim. They're not thinking with their hearts, but rather with their stomachs. Verse 25 goes on to say, When they found him, that is Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They addressed Jesus as rabbi, as teacher, though they're about to dispute his teaching. And Jesus answered them, uh, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This crowd has seen miracles of the like that only God could perform. The kind of miracles meant to cause a person to fall at Jesus' feet in worship. The problem is they're not so much interested in Jesus as they are the material benefits that Jesus can provide them. You you could say it this way. This might be one of the most critical declarations that I make this morning. They see Jesus not as precious, but rather as useful. Say that again. They see Jesus not as precious, but rather as useful. There are a lot of people like this in in evangelical circles, right? This goes back to the virtue series that we worked through uh, last year where we talked about the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. It's this view of Christianity as having all the same deep-seated desires that you had prior to your conversion, except now those desires are met by Jesus. A couple of examples. I've always wanted to to fall in love, and in the words of the the old country song, I've been looking for love in all the wrong places, you know, and I, I just can't seem to find it. But, but now, now I know that I've been looking elsewhere when I should have come to Jesus. And so he gets my worship because I know that he'll bring me someone. That is not Christianity. Let me be crystal clear on that. That's using Jesus to write the check for that which we long for more than him. Which is why so many people, quote unquote, walk away from the faith when Jesus refuses to write that check for whatever that thing is or that person Another example, and this would be one that would have been good for me to hear as a kid growing up in the Bible Belt. I don't want to go to hell, and I've sought my escape in, in a number of ways. I've sought to be a good person. I've sought to escape that through moralism. I've sought to understand various worldviews, even outside of the Christian worldview, to to try to uh, gain some sort of understanding as to who God is and, and how to How to claw my way toward him. But now I understand that Jesus is the answer. He's the get out of hell free card. Again, that is not Christianity at its heart. It does not take a Jesus adoring heart to want to escape hell. There are people all over the world who want that and who are happy to have Jesus write the check for that future and are perfectly content if Jesus is not a part of that utopian future. Point in case, go back to my. Illustration last week of, of of the judgment house experience as a kid growing up that that weird enigma that that Christian version of a haunted house where you go through and and experience various forms of fatalities and and you're left wrestling with the question as to whether you choose Jesus or the devil and the fires of hell and you know I, I mentioned last week that anybody with a, a good brain in their head and, and two good eyes would choose Jesus out of the two options but. But remember, last week I said walking away, I, I wasn't so much excited about this weird halo-wearing Jesus petting his sheep like the, the creepy villain from Inspector Gadget pets his cat. I didn't care if that Jesus was a part of that future that he was inviting me into. And that's a lot of people's stories who, who maybe grew up in the, the Bible Belt, certainly mine. The beauty of the gospel is this. It's not that we get Jesus to give us this, that, or the other. The beauty of the gospel is that we get Jesus, period. The question that begs to be answered is this. If Jesus doesn't give you this, that, or the other, whatever that may be, do you still want him? Or another way we could ask it is, is he precious to you or is he just useful I've thrown this quote out before. There is no better one to make sense of this idea than this, so I'll just keep throwing it out there a couple times a year. John Piper's quote from his book, God is the Gospel, fantastic read, especially if you grew up in the the land of, of the culturally Christian, so to speak. He says this. He says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? He goes on to say, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there, will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. This crowd in John chapter 6 is not interested in Jesus so much as they are the benefits that Jesus can provide them. And so we're told in verse 27, uh, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, similar to his encounter with the woman in the well, uh, well not in the well, she was at the well. That'd be, that'd be a, different, a different kind of rescue mission. Um, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Je- Jesus says, I can give you... Uh, everlasting, life-giving water. You'll you'll never thirst again. Here, similarly, he says, I can give you something to feast on that will satisfy you forever. And you can trust me on that because God the Father has set his seal on me. It's kind of like when you buy a collectible and it comes with uh, documentation, uh, declaring its authenticity. As a kid, I used to collect Frank Thomas baseball cards. I was convinced that I'd be a multimillionaire by the age of 18 if he just hit enough home runs. And part of that was based on the fact that uh, many of those signed baseball cards came with a document declaring authenticity that in my mind made it worth a million bucks. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's, he's essentially saying, I'm the real deal. When I say that I can give you something to feast on that will satisfy you forever, I mean it. I have the authority to say that. It goes on to say in verse 28, Then the crowd said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Not a crazy question because Jesus, going back to verse 27, tells them to work for the food that it endures to eternal life. And so they asked, What kind of working? What kind of laboring? What kind of striving leads to eternal life? It's not an uncommon way of thinking in our context, is it? It's this belief that that God loves the good guys and he hates the bad guys, so be a good guy and God will love you. If you just read your Bible more, God will love you and you will inherit eternal life. If you just pray more, God will love you and you will inherit eternal life. If you just attend a few more church services, God will love you and you will inherit eternal life. If you just keep from killing anyone during your life on planet Earth, God will love you and you will inherit eternal life. You just fill in the blank with whatever you wanna put in that, it's very subjective Jesus blows up that way of thinking in verse 29. He said to the crowd, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Notice how Jesus defines healthy laboring here. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus essentially says, work to believe, labor to believe, strive to believe. That the Christian life is a life committed to laboring to believe. Laboring to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Laboring to believe that we are who Jesus says we are because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. Laboring to believe that every other well besides him runs dry at some point. Laboring to believe that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. The crowd to some degree understands what Jesus is saying here. They, They understand that he's calling them to make him the object of their belief, which is why they ask for a sign. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right, this this is rich. The, this crowd has just seen Jesus take the contents of a little boy's lunchbox and feed a crowd of five thousand men plus their families. That miracle, that particular miracle, is not even 24 hours old yet. And they respond, show us a sign that we may believe you, Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you the human heart. We all do it, right? Jesus did that miracle in our lives yesterday, and yet we we question him today. Crowd goes Old Testament on Jesus. Jesus, we, we'd love to believe. But if you recall, here, here's where it, Here's where they question the rabbi's teaching. If you recall, Moses provided manna in the wilderness every day for 40 years. You did it once. Why should we believe that you're something special, Jesus? Jesus said to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, which by the way, anytime you see Jesus say truly, truly, I say to you, he says it a lot in the gospel accounts, that's a declaration of deity. The, the Old Testament prophet said, thus says the Lord, and then they would declare whatever it is that God had given them to say. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, I am the Lord. The Lord is standing right in front of you as we speak. He says this in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus reminds them that That Moses didn't do anything, that it was God who provided the manna in the wilderness. And not only that, the Old Testament manna was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. Think about it. In the wilderness, you had bread coming down from heaven to give life to a rebellious people. In the gospel, you have Jesus Christ himself coming down from heaven to give life to a rebellious people. That whole whole manna in the wilderness thing has Jesus written all over it. Jesus is telling this crowd that they need him. He is the bread of God who came down from heaven and going back to last week gives life to the world. But the crowd's still not, they're still not cluing in. They're still not getting it. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Here's that declarative statement, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What what is Jesus saying here? I mean, at first glance, this is a strange way to declare yourself to be God in the flesh, right? I'm bread, I'm drink, That's That's a little weird, right? What Jesus is essentially saying is this, as your body needs food to sustain it, so your soul needs Jesus to sustain it that he and he alone can satisfy the deep longings of our soul. That is a bold statement, friends. That is a statement of deity, right? We, we all know what it's like to have an empty stomach, to eat something and to experience that moment of satisfaction when, when the food fills the void. Some of you guys are feeling that right now because you, you forgot to eat breakfast, you know? It's always weird to me when, when I haven't eaten in a while and I drink a cup of water and I feel it go all the way down to the bottom. You know what I'm talking about? That's a weird thing. At the risk of sounding cliche, spiritually speaking, Jesus is telling us that there is a God-shaped void in every one of us, and he is declaring that he and he alone can fill it. Augustine, in his famous work, Confessions, says this, he says, you, God, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Think about that. The world is filled with people chasing after one thing, after another, after another, after another to fill the emptiness, to give meaning to life. It's all around us. Even, even us Christians get caught up in that rat race from time to time, don't we? Believing that this job or, or that relationship or, or this next acquired possession will do the trick. Even those who climb to the top of the food chain eventually find themselves wanting. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes. C.S. Lewis, in his work that we quote once a week around here, Mere Christianity, says it this way. He says, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I take it a step further than that and say we were made for the God of that other world, namely Jesus Christ himself. And so he comes down from that other world to fill the emptiness, to give our lives meaning, to offer us something better than the empty chase that can only leave us wanting In the end, the question for all of us this morning, both Christian and non-Christian alike, is this. Jesus presents this to us in this passage. Do you believe that Jesus alone can fill the emptiness, the void in your soul? And and listen, if you're a Christian in this room, I, I know that you cognitively believe that. I know that you theologically believe that. But the question is, are you functionally believing that in the present? Again, going back to what Jesus says, we labor to believe, we strive to believe, we work to believe because our hearts veer away from that belief over and over and over again. Do you functionally believe that? Are you believing that in the present? Does your life reflect a declarative yes to that question? Or a couple of weird ways we could ask it. Do you know something of what it means to have hunger pangs for Jesus? That if you don't get time with him, your soul just might starve. Does anybody think like that? Does anybody talk like that? Or is that just for the radicals in the church? Listen to how the early church father, Augustine, who I quoted just a moment ago, describes his conversion experience. He said this, Suddenly, it became to me to be without the sweets of folly. What I once feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. You, O God, turned them out and entered in to take their place, sweeter than any pleasure. It's like a changing of spiritual taste buds, almost. Or how about the old Scottish pastor, Samuel Rutherford, says this. He says, there's enough in our Lord's kitchen to satisfy all his children and enough wine in his cellar to quench all their thirst." And so he says, hunger on, for there is food in hunger for Christ. Never go from him without bothering him with a dish full of hungry desires until he feeds you. And to be clear, Rutherford's not talking about bringing a dish full of of desires for anything and everything outside of Jesus to the table. That's not what he's going after. He's talking about bringing our hungry souls to the table of the king, believing that the king himself can truly satisfy us. Jesus himself declares that he came to fill the emptiness, that he and he alone can fill that void in our hearts, in our souls. Verse 36, Jesus goes on to say to this crowd, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now it all starts to make a little bit more sense what's going on in this moment. What Jesus is saying to this unbelieving crowd is this. You're not hungry because you're dead. And dead people don't have appetites. These verses are a reminder of what we talked about last week, that we need God to perform a miracle, to to awaken in human souls a hunger for the true bread. Going back to the very beginning, we need him to do that thing that he did when he spoke the world into existence, to declare to darkened hearts, let there be light to do that thing he did when he raised Lazarus from the grave going back to last week to awaken dead hearts to the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. In fact, Jesus will go on to show just how massive of a miracle we're talking about when he tells the crowd this in verse 53. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. All right, let's get something crystal clear here this morning. The natural mind does not hear those words and just casually go, Sure, Jesus, eat your flesh and drink your blood. You got it. In fact, if you go on to read this account, multitudes of people are going to walk away from Jesus for having said these very words. This would have been incredibly offensive to uh, a predominantly Jewish crowd who was forbidden by the ceremonial law to consume blood, particularly human blood. I mean, what, what is Jesus talking about here? Cannibalism? Some people actually interpret uh, his words in that way. Makes you wonder why he chooses to talk that way. Most most people looking to to grow big churches don't say things like that. I don't think he's going after a megachurch here. What is he doing? Couldn't he have come up with a better word picture than something that sounds like it came straight out of the walking dead? But, But here's the interesting thing. The crowd, going back to verses 30 and 31, take Jesus back to the Old Testament. Jesus, if you can just measure up to Moses, we'll believe in you. What Jesus says is incredibly offensive, but, but it's also incredibly kind because he takes them back to the, the very book on the shelf in their library that they know better than any other book, which is the Old Testament, the Torah in particular, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus takes them back to the same Old Testament that they try to use to show him to be inferior, and he uses that very same Old Testament to show them that he is, in fact, superior. That, that, that man in the wilderness thing, Jesus says, that, that ultimately points to me. I'm the true bread. I'm actually quite superior uh, to the bread that fell from the sky back in Moses' day. The Israelites ate that bread over and over and over again, and yet they still died. I'm the true bread. I can give you life both now and for eternity. And not only that, this eat my flesh and drink my blood lingo, that points to me too. That's Old Testament stuff. That's me saying that the entire Jewish sacrificial system points to me. That the sacrificing of thousands and thousands and thousands of animals in the Old Testament on behalf of sinners, that all points to Jesus. That the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Someone has to die. Someone has to bear the curse. And Jesus is saying here to this crowd of people, that's me. That's me. I'm not here to overthrow Roman rule. I'm here to bear sin's curse of death. That's the mission that I'm on. When I talk about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, I'm not getting cannibalistic on you, Jesus says. I'm telling you to trust in my broken body and shed blood on behalf of sinners like you. It becomes crystal clear when you compare verses 40 and 54. Look up on the screen. In verse 40, Jesus says, Everyone who looks on the Son and, and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, he says it this way, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the similar language there? The phrase feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is parallel to the phrase looks on the son and believes in him. That, that one is a metaphorical way of describing or referring to the other. That, that Jesus offers eternal life to those who believe in his broken body and his shed blood, that, that his broken body and shed blood are the final sacrifice for sin. It's, it's kind of ironic. If anything, Jesus should be the one offended in this passage, right? The Jews refer to the Old Testament to argue that he's inferior to Moses, and Jesus refers to the same Old Testament to argue that he is superior to all of it, that, that the entire Old Testament is foreshadowing his coming into the world to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die and to rise from the grave, going back to last week, to slay those darkened dragons of Satan, sin and death. Going back to Jesus' question to Martha that we did look at last week. The question for all of us this morning is, do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that the broken body and shed blood of Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin? And not just sin in a generic way, but for your sin. The same God who called Lazarus forth from a grave awakens human hearts every day to the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Or to use the language found in this morning's passage, God performs the miracle of giving us an appetite so that we find ourselves hungry for Jesus, believing that the emptiness, that the void in our lives is his to fill. And Jesus says, going back to verses 37 through 40, if you find yourself hungry and come to me, I will not reject you from the table. I won't do it. You will have a seat at my table in the kingdom, both now and in the age to come, Jesus says. And so if you're not a Christian, my prayer for you this morning is that that God would awaken your appetite, that he would give you a different set of taste buds by his spirit, that, that you would find Augustine's words to be your words. Again, that declaration, suddenly it became to me to be without the sweets of folly. What I once feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. You, O God, turned them out and entered in to take their place, sweeter than any pleasure. And if you are a Christian, again, going back to those questions, do you know something of what it means to have hunger pangs for Jesus? That if you don't get time with him, your soul just might starve? If not, here's a thought to consider as we begin to make our way into a time of reflection leading to communion. That, that same thing that's true of, of dead people is oftentimes true of sick people. That uh, Sick people typically don't have appetites, right? I, I've, you know what it's like to go through an illness and even a pack of saltines doesn't really sound that great to you, though it's about the only thing you can stomach, right? There's something about sickness that uh, impedes our appetite. Spiritual sickness works the same way. Um, the the loss of a spiritual appetite can come as a result of spiritual sickness. And 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 that presents itself in a number of ways. Let me just throw some of those out there so that um those of you who profess to know and love and follow Jesus, but maybe are wrestling with that question of I don't I don't know if I have hunger pangs for Jesus, can kind of sort that out maybe. Let me just throw out some possibilities. Um for one, unconfessed sin can diminish our hunger for Jesus. Um Maybe for some of us, the first step toward experiencing a hunger for him again is confessing sin and, and turning to him in repentance. To, uh, one way we could say it, to give you kind of the word picture in Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, is to, to turn from Lady Folly's table and to, to turn to Jesus' table, to the table of the king in repentance. That may be, that may be one thing that, that's helpful to engage this morning. For others, maybe it's uh, it's discouragement, disappointment, depression, that that's diminished your hunger for Jesus. And, and if that's you, can I can I just encourage you to bring your broken heart to the table of the King? That that same King that that slayed the darkened dragons of of Satan, sin, and death, sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, interceding on your behalf. He sympathizes with you because he knows what it's like. He took on human flesh. He surrounded himself with everything that makes this world sad. You can go to him in the midst of your discouragement. He can handle it. Or maybe it's filling up on... Proverbial junk food that, that can diminish our hunger for Jesus as well. It's possible coming out of Easter to consume so many peeps or Cadbury eggs that you don't want to eat things that actually are meant to keep you alive, right? Because you've, you've lost your appetite. The same is true spiritually, that it's possible to whet our appetites with so many things that can't sustain us that we no longer have a hunger for Jesus, the only one who can truly sustain us. It's one of the motivations for fasting, right? I'm not hungry for Jesus, so I need to cut some things out of my diet in order that my, I may see my appetite for him increase. Maybe that's a, a practical takeaway this morning. It comes back to the question, what, what are you hungry for? What do you crave? What are you seeking satisfaction in? What are you seeking fullness in? We're all pursuing something because we were made with a void, um, Or I guess I should say we weren't made with a void, but in the wake of sin entering the picture, there now is a void. Um, If we fill up on junk, we we leave little to no room for Jesus as we chase after this, that, and the other that that we find in this world. And then lastly, uh, self-righteousness can diminish our hunger for Jesus. Um, This is is a real uh, eye-opener for me. This was... Prior to my conversion, I was a skeptic. I thought I knew more than God. I thought my autonomous reason was king of the universe. And and there's still this this battle with with self-righteousness, with pride at times. Let me say it this way. There's no room for godly hunger in the belly of the self-righteous. If we're full of ourselves, there's no room for Jesus to fill us, to satisfy us. There are probably some other possibilities, some other ways that we could answer that question as it pertains to what takes away our spiritual appetite. But, but in the end, you and I, we were made for Jesus. Going back to Augustine's quote, going back to C.S. Lewis's quote, he's the only one who could fill that God-shaped void in all of us. Our hearts remain restless until they rest in him. And so if you come in and you're restless this morning, You're invited to the table of the king to come to Jesus, to bring him your restlessness, to ask him who declares himself to be the true bread, come down from heaven to fill the void, to satisfy the emptiness. Our souls will remain hungry until we come to his table. And he invites us to come in a number of ways through the ordinary means of God's grace, through time in the scriptures, through through this time that we have together, sitting under the preached word, through the sacraments of baptism and communion. In a moment, we'll take communion. Jesus Christ promises that he is present by his spirit in that moment. Time in prayer, time spent with other Christians in community, time spent doing the hard work of excavating sin and unbelief in our lives, sorting out what it means to labor to believe based on what the unbelief looks like in our hearts. The preaching of the gospel to ourselves you could say it this way, he's given us the flatware, so to speak, and he invites us to come to him and to find our souls satisfied. And so as we move into a time of, of reflection this morning, um, again, if you're not a Christian, and I, my, my prayer this morning is, is that you would see Jesus, see this declaration and wrestle with it. Going back to what we talked about last week, C.S. Lewis says there's no room to call him a good teacher. He, he's either a liar because he declares himself to be divine, or he's a crazy man for saying things like that, if it's not true, or he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, we must fall at his feet in worship. And so if you're not a Christian, I invite you to fall at his feet in worship, and to receive the new taste buds that he gives. And if you are a Christian, as we spend this uh, these next few moments reflecting, um, I, I invite you to, to ask the question, well, where, where is my hunger for Jesus? At what level do I experience hunger pangs for Jesus that if I don't get time with him, my soul will starve? Well, what does that look like for you? And, and if that's not true, what is it that's getting in the way? Coming back to some of those diagnostic points that we just talked about. I invite you, as we prepare to receive Uh, the elements this morning, the bread representing his broken body, the cup representing his shed blood, that that this would be a time of repentance for us who profess to know and love and follow Jesus. But not only repentance, uh, also a a remembering of who he is and what he's accomplished for us, and a rejoicing that that we're not just left with this void and, and then God checking out on us, Winding up the clock of human history and then just leaving us on our own with that void. But rather he promises to fill it and he, he makes good on that promise such that he enters into the very darkened slums of human history to engage us in that. That's your Jesus, Christian. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that.